This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, February 12th, 2023 with Melissa Dalton Bradford. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board and along with fellow board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin who are helping out today, we're happy to have you join us. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous Gospel Study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network, like Beyond the Shadow of a Doubt and This Global Latter-day Life. You can also find the latest issues of the journal along with the entire Dialogue archive. That's more than five decades of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermon, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide all the work we do. Find out how you can support that work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon Studies Journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll follow along on Facebook where we're also running a live stream. Today's teacher is Melissa Dalton-Bradford. Melissa is an author, public speaker, and co-founder of two nonprofits, Mormon Women for Ethical Government, MWIG, a nonpartisan organization focused on watchdogging political leadership and engaging women in the same. And their story is Our Story, a refugee advocacy organization. Melissa holds two degrees from Brigham Young University, a BA in German language and literature, and a master's degree in comparative literature. The recipient of the 2018 BYU Alumni Association Service to the Family Award, she has parlayed her training and her family's 30 years of global nomadism across eight countries and six languages into an extensive body of writing, including, including poetry and articles published in journals, magazines, online sites, and anthologies, and two books. On Loss and Living Onward, and Global Mom, a memoir, which won the Association of Mormon Letters Award for Best Memoir. Originally from Utah, Melissa served a German-speaking mission in Austria. Recent empty nesters, she and her husband Randall reside just north of Frankfurt, Germany. They love traveling across their native Europe, hiking and biking in local forests and reading aloud to each other and working with youth and young adults inside and outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Melissa Sen Dalton, who graduated in Middle Eastern Studies and Arabic from BYU and who is currently living as a freelance writer and English and Arabic teacher in Jerusalem, will be helping with the lesson today. As with any Latter-day Saints scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer will be offered by Heather Sendall. Heather is a writer and editor for the Utah Women in Leadership Project, the BYU Arts Partnership, and she worked with Exponent 2 for 23 years as a contributor, blogger, editor, retreat pre presenter, and president. She also helps run the Op-Ed Lab for Mormon Women for Ethical Government. She received a BA in Humanities and an MA in English from BYU and is currently at the tail end of a master's degree in Family and Family 
uh, marriage and family therapy at UVU. She lives in Provo um, with three of her four kids, three cats, and one husband. At the end of the lesson, Molly Cannon Hadfield will offer a closing prayer. Molly has a BFA from BYU in interior design and a minor in fine arts and has worked in both fields at various times. She illustrated and helped write the Exponent 2 Illuminating Ladies Coloring Book of Influential Mormon Women. She dabbles in painting, photography, cooking, and floral design, and also loves travel, reading, music, Zumba, and her dogs. For the last several years, she's been a moderator for the Mormon Women for Ethical Government's Facebook discussion group and has also helped produce educational content for their discussion group and blog. Molly has lived in Provo long enough to claim it as her hometown. She is married to Nathan and has two man-sized teenager, teenage boys that call her mom. We'll start today with music, uh, David Toke's Beautiful Savior. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to come together as a community. We're so thankful for this Sabbath day, and we ask that it may be restorative to us as we study the Savior. We also ask to bless Melissa as she shares with us her insights and inspirations that we can partake in a spirit of peace and bless us to be inspired by her good works. And finally, Lord, we ask a special blessing of of comfort to the people in Turkey and Syria as they are attempting to navigate this, uh, this tragedy that's happening. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Grief brought me here to where I'm sitting right now and speaking with you. I'm sitting in my parents' sunroom in their home in Utah. It's the place where I moved when I was in my preteen years. It's the place that for many years I called home. And grief brought me to this room. By that I mean in early December I received a telephone call from my father who was dying. And he was summoning his four children from the four corners of the earth to come and be with him in his last days. Now we had heard this before. He had been close to death a number of times, but this time it actually was the end of his life. And so I was here again in this very room where I'm sitting while he was in a hospice bed and took his last mortal breath. I was here for the funeral and I'm here for the aftermath. And I'm staying here because it just happens to be that I was asked to give a keynote speech at a conference at BYU in the end of March, which is on grief and loss and learning from loss. And the reason why I was asked to do that is because, like many of you, I've experienced major loss. We know that loss has many iterations, and one of the iterations of loss that undid our family was the untimely and tragic and violent death of our eldest son when he was 18. And I suppose it's because I wrote a book about that and because I have lectured on that and done many presentations on it online and in podcasts, in firesides, that BYU asked me to be part of this conference. 
addressing that kind of loss, that one kind of loss, the loss of a beloved to death. Where was our family when that loss happened? We were in the middle of an international move, which is not unusual for us. It was one of 21 moves that we've made. It was a move from many years in France to the next phase, which was in Germany. And I was writing that story when the narrative was yanked off track, when our son lost his life trying to save another college classmate from drowning. That experience of moving and mourning, I think, has taught me more lessons than any academic degree, than any geography our family has ever lived in. That experience of the iterations of loss, of losing identity and stability and friends and networking and even competencies, and then having to start all over again, coupled with a major traumatic loss, I think tempered my spirit to be ready for something that I could not have choreographed, could not have anticipated. And that was moving from Switzerland to Germany in 2014, thinking, well, Frankfurt is boring, so this is where I'm going to write my next book. But what happened was an eruption of unprecedented violence in Syria, which sent hundreds and thousands of our sisters and brothers into Central Europe and primarily into Germany and primarily at my doorstep in in Frankfurt. So my experience with moving frequently and being undone by that and having experienced traumatic loss in the middle of that experience, I think, was a severe mercy or a benevolent preparation so that I would feel like I wanted instinctively to lean into the lives of these sisters and brothers whose lives had been impacted by conflict that they didn't cause, by religious persecution that they couldn't control. Um, And so in 2015, uh, at the outbreak of the Syrian crisis, streams of stories wove together with my own story. And this is what is the background for helping begin this nonprofit that Rebecca told you about called Their Story is Our Story with a very dear friend. We had no idea what we were entering into, but we did know that by getting close to the story, our own story would be impacted and we would be able to change something. We didn't know quite what. TSOS has gone on to become a thriving nonprofit that continues to advocate for refugees and learn from refugees and build educational uh, tools for people to learn from refugee stories. What I did in that original Syrian crisis was teach German to many Middle Eastern refugees. I didn't know that that itself would be a preparation for another crisis. So still living in Frankfurt, still thinking I was going to write a book because things had settled down a little bit from the Syrian crisis. And my friends now from these many countries were integrating into German culture 
and speaking the language very well, by the way. Putin invaded Ukraine and Germany received Ukrainians. So now I'm teaching German to Ukrainians and I'll tell you something. We think that we are teaching the bereft. We think that we are teaching the displaced. We think that we are offering some sort of leg up or hand pulling upward to people who have been left homeless, countryless, some of them, familyless, with no future. But my experience has been that the morning, as one Christian pastor said it, the morning are aching visionaries. And it's from these people that I have learned the greatest blessings of life. I have learned that proximity changes perspective. If everyone in this call could be sitting as I have sat side by side with people who have lost many layers of what is most precious to them, their perspectives would be changed. And a changed perspective changes a paradigm. And changed paradigms change people. Changed people, as we know, change the future. So it requires proximity to actually make high-level change. And we'll come back to this over and over again in today's class that I'm so thrilled to be able to share with you. Those who mourn are given a blessing. And because of my experience with mourning, I chose, out of all of the things I could have chosen to speak on, all of the beautiful passages in John, all of the other Beatitudes from Matthew 5 through 7, I zeroed in on Matthew 5, 4, and then on Matthew 5, 9, 5, 4 being, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then later, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And our task in our class today, and you're going to help me with this, is to discover what the connection is between those two blessings. Let's talk again about what the Beatitudes are to begin with. The Beatitudes, when I, when I decided, first let me just back up a little bit. When Rebecca asked me if I would teach this class, I jumped out of my seat like the most obnoxious third grader in the front row of class, threw my arm to the ceiling, and I said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, before I had any idea idea really what I was getting myself into I thought it might be something simple pretty clear cut then I opened up and I realized the attitudes <laughs> that's like the Magna Carta of Christianity this is huge and it's complex and many people who are in this call have written treatises on the Beatitudes have written theses on the Beatitudes and so what can I possibly add to a discussion about the great Sermon on the Mount? Again, the manifesto of the kingdom of God. Let me start with this. The Beatitudes are very different from the Ten Commandments, aren't they? So the Ten Commandments are primarily prohibitions, whereas the Beatitudes are, according to some scholars, invitations. They are promises. They are what the Latin word means, beatus. They are blessings. They are describing the kingdom of God, 
or they could be prescribing the kingdom of God. Some people say they are, as I believe, impossible imperatives. And some people say they are apparent paradoxes. I want to argue that they are blessings of the spirit, that each of the Beatitudes is a blessing that we can seek through the spirit. And when we then embody these Beatitudes, embody these blessings, we then enter the world as a blessing to the world. So keeping that in mind, and again, this is the gospel according to Melissa, keeping that in mind, let me just say one more thing about these Beatitudes. It's dangerous, I believe, to treat them individually. I believe that these Beatitudes are a unit. I believe that they come from the same source. They they speak to the same spiritual sensibilities. But as I said, I'm going to focus just on four and on nine, asking you the whole time to be considering what that intersection is between mourning, comforting, and peacemaking. So the first question might be, well, what are we mourning about? When Christ pronounces that blessing, blessed be those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Some scholars argue that this can only be mourning about sin. That's really the only thing, according to some, that's really worth mourning because doesn't the gospel of Jesus Christ eradicate any other pain? Our lives are so lofty, our vision is so eternal that we really don't mourn any sort of temporal loss, even if it's the loss of our 18-year-old son in a whirlpool in a canal in Idaho, which was the experience that we had. I contest with that. I think that there are many, many iterations of loss. And I submit that the blessing is pronounced on the head of all of those sorts of losses that we experience in life. Some we can erect a memorial for. Some we can even write a book about. Some can be shared in community, and some are born only in the cold caverns of the intimate heart. Some can never be shared. Some can never be spoken. I believe, though, that as the beatitude is expressed, they shall be comforted. And we're going to talk about this today, and I invite uh, commentary also from all of you wise people. Whether it is grave sin, whether it is grave sorrow, whether it is the grave itself, we are blessed that we will be comforted. So how will those who mourn be comforted? That's a question. I'm, it's not rhetorical. I'm really throwing that out to you. How will we, when we are heaving in sorrow, how will we be comforted? Number two, when will we be comforted? And then number three, by whom will we be comforted? If at any point you want to add any comments, then you can drop them in the chat box, and we're going to have our facilitator share that with us. But I'm sure that your mind, like mine, goes immediately to Alma, a prophet of the Book of Mormon, who in Mosiah 18 uh, is giving a blessing also, sort of like a truncated Beatitudes, 
for the followers that that trail him into the wilderness, running from King Noah. And he says to them something very straightforward. He said, if you want to be a member of the fold of Christ, here are the four things. Here are my four Beatitudes. Number one, you need to be ready to bear one another's burdens. Number two, mourn with those that mourn. Number three, comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And number four, stand as a witness of God at all times and in all places. So essentially what Alma is doing is giving us the outline, the very simple streamlined outline of our Christian covenant. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to mourn with one another. We are to offer comfort to one another. And we are to stand as witnesses for one another or as a witness for God. I have much literature, as you can imagine, to share. And I've gone into, you know, the archives of ancient prophets and ancient spiritual leaders and restoration church leaders. And I've also found great material from different faiths. And I'll be quoting from them. Now, one of them is, and I love to quote female priestesses. I just love my women friends who are reverends and pastors. And one of my favorites is the Shannon Kirshner. She is a pastor in Chicago. And the reason why I love what I'm going to share with you right now from, from Pastor Kirshner is because she references maybe one of my greatest uh, preaching heroes and I'll mention his name again in a moment. You might know his name. His name is William Sloan Coffin, the pastor. He's long since uh, passed away, but he was the pastor of Riverside Church in Manhattan. And um, if you want to, you can just Google him to find out about such a fascinating human being. And if you want to ever listen to an exuberant if your own Sunday school lesson is a little bit dry, or if the sacrament meeting lessons are not really, you know, firing your spirit, go listen to some William Sloan Coffin, because he'll get you standing up and shouting hallelujah. But here is what uh, Pastor Shannon Kirshner shares in a beautiful sermon about the experience of, of mourning and comforting. And keep the words of Alma. Um, in mind, and those four points that I just outlined about bearing one another's burdens, mourning first, comforting next, and standing as a witness. Reverend Krishna, merely standing there can sometimes be enough. Refusing to run away because our friend's mournful wails are raw and vulnerable, that can be enough. Just simply being present as their shoulders heave in concert with the waves of their tears, that can be enough. And now I'll paraphrase from her. Sometimes a funeral dirge divides us into the grieving and the spectators of grief. There can be crowds who follow the dirge to the graveside. They can stand and observe. But I would suggest, and this is Melissa speaking, the challenge is to stand as a witness, not standing 
as an onlooker, as a spectator? Are they family, friends, or merely curiosity seekers rubbernecking at a car wreck? Or are they religious busybodies who easily fall into judgment and critique? Quote, he should never have been driving that fast in the rain. Or, quote, she should have kept kept him from hanging out with that crowd of young men, lazy parenting. Or folks who secretly chalked up the death to a lack of faithfulness, like they must have not prayed enough or the Lord would not have let him die. I can't see any heads nodding out there, but I imagine that there are heads nodding out there because my experience has been that it's not, it's not exclusive to, to Mormondom, to our own faith community, but this seems to be a not so unusual response to someone else's grief. We have in our call Michael Austin, who's written a brilliant book on Job. Well, go and visit Job. Go and visit the story of Job in the Old Testament and see how his friends were, as as Job called them, miserable comforters. They did everything that I just listed and called themselves witnesses of God. We might wonder ourselves how many of our family and friends are truly helpful. So here's an alternative as Reverend Kirshner uh, says. We need someone who is standing with us, merely present, refusing to be scared away by the torment of grief and refusing to try and explain death by repeating empty platitudes or trying to make meaning when meaning cannot be made. Again, we need someone who will stand with, with, with us as a witness of God. So one of the great preachers, William Sloan Coffin, knew something about death, and he knew something about mourning. He knew something about comfort, either good comfort or miserable comfort. And he knew this because his son Alex, also a young adult like my son Parker when he lost his life, drove his car inadvertently into Boston Harbor. Here is what William Sloan Coffin shares about how some people fumble and maybe add injury to injury when they observe someone else's uh, misery or their loss. Coffin is speaking about a woman who came to his home immediately after his son Alex's death. I just don't understand the will of God. Hinting that somehow Coffin's son's death must have been a part of a divine plan of which Coffin was clearly unaware. The preacher and grieving father responded with thunderous anger. This is Coffin speaking. I'll say you don't, lady. Do you think it was the will of God that Alex never fixed that lousy windshield wiper of his, that he was probably driving too fast in such a storm, that he probably had a couple of frosties too many? Do you think it is God's will that there are no streetlights along that stretch of road? and no guardrail separating the road and Boston Harbor. For some reason, Coffin preached, nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get it through their heads that God doesn't go around this world with his finger on triggers, his fist around knives, his hands on steering wheels. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies, 
is it is the will of God. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die. That when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all our hearts to break. End quote. That is what I believe. And you know, there are people everywhere, far and near, not just those who are displaced by conflict or the terrible tragedies that we're all observing now in Turkey and Syria, not just those. There are people far and near who are lost in grief, whose shoulders are heaving, their own spirits are fighting for breath, as Reverend Kirshner says. Do we see them? Christ does. He sees them in their most unguarded moment, messy and dying inside. And it's that kind of compassion that makes one's own eyes well up with tears. And it makes one's own heart ache for the loss of someone else. It makes our stomachs fold in on themselves, imagining what it is like to bear that kind of pain. From scripture, from studying the Savior's life, we know that Christ's reaction to those in pain is to go to them, never to minimize pain, never to wave it off or to placate with platitudes. He goes right to the grieving. With increased compassion, we see it over and over again. Go ahead, when this class is done, go search it out in the scriptures and you'll see the pattern of Christ turning to those in great pain with increased compassion. And he stands next to them. In that moment, when God's presence is next to us in our pain, he embodies that beatitude. Blessed be those are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted through his embodiment of peace and compassion. He restores to life. He restores healing from brokenness. He restores relief from despair. And he restores life from death. Now, sometimes Christ does not restore life from death in the manner that we might want it. And I have to admit that it's been problematic for me to sit in church meetings when knowing what my own life experience was, where every priesthood blessing was uttered, where hundreds of pieces people were fasting and praying, where my own faith was churning like the motor of the Titanic. <laughs> Still, that blessing of a restored life was not given, but I have to remember the wise words of a friend who was standing with me at the foot of my son's gurney as he lay in, in the deep coma for 36 hours, she softly whispered to me, what is the greater miracle, healing or comfort? I've chewed on that one for many years now, and I've come to realize that they are the same miracle. And we, as mourners and co-mourners, can offer that spiritual healing when we stand as God would stand, as witnesses, next to those who are mourning. And then we transform that very beatitude 
Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforters. If from our own experiences of loss, we don't then grow into a comforter, then what has been the lesson from our loss? One of the reasons why we are blessed from mourning is because we then have a broken spot in our own soul where we can connect with others. Indeed, we bond with one another on our broken edges. It's not on our laminated surfaces where we connect with one another. Author Cormac McCarthy said, the deepest communities are those that are founded in grief and in loss. So blessed are they that, they that mourn, all of us who mourn, for we then can become comforters. Now, as I switch gears into the next part of our lesson, into peacemaking, I want to ask this question, and maybe you'll answer this all or you'll discuss this with Dalton. Can we mourn for our enemies? Maybe that's the next level of discipleship. Maybe that is true discipleship. It's one thing to mourn for those for whom we already share mutual affection. It's one thing to mourn for people within our tribe, within our political party, within our religion, within our neighborhood. It's another thing to mourn for the losses of those who might be categorically our opponents or our enemies. Do we mourn the fact that we have enemies? And in what ways have you seen mourning and comforting related to peacemaking? I'm going to turn the time now over to Dalton. I haven't given anyone here much of a chance to speak at all. But again, Dalton's coming to us from Damascus Gate. That's where Dalton, um, I want to add one thing that I hadn't planned on adding, but I just to tell you a little bit about Dalton, Dalton was um, a young preteen as he stood at the foot of his eldest brother's gurney and, and watched that brother take his last mortal death breath into death. So Dalton understands also what traumatic immediate loss feels like, like and I believe that that experience as a young man has been part of the foundation that has made him so exquisitely sensitive to conflict and to violence and to those who are in the margins. So let's talk with Dalton about what the essence of our discipleship is and how it demands active faith, hope, and engagement in a real-world application. So Tell us, Dalton, if you would, please, what are you observing in one of the most conflict-ridden geographies on the planet with regards to reconciliation, retaliation, and or peacemaking? And would you please say it in English, because I'm not sure how many people here speak Arabic or Hebrew. (laughs) Um, Yes, so first of all, Thanks, mom. <laughs> no, but thanks for um, thanks for that lead-in and those beautiful comments. Uh, putting some of the most fundamental yet inexpressible things into words is something that my mom's really good at. So, um, as she mentioned, I'm coming to you live from 
near Damascus Gate is where I'm living. It's within the old city of Jerusalem. And you could call it pretty much the heart of the heart of um, the conflict here as it's um, sometimes oversimplistically um, called. So, so yeah, I, um, I, I learned Arabic before at BYU before coming here. And one of my aims or one of my hopes in, in coming here was that I would gain a firsthand understanding of, of exactly what's happening here. I've been following through uh, news outlets and through friends of mine on the ground, what was happening to Palestinians, to Israelis. And, and I thought, I need to see with my own eyes. That was, um, it just felt necessary to me. So, so I came here. And to summarize, there's, there's, simply, uh, there's simply no time uh, that I have, even if I were given an hour to enumerate the kind of experiences that I've had since I've been here, um, especially since it's the first time I'm speaking about it to a large audience. But, uh, but I can say that, to summarize briefly, six months' worth of experience in uh, a brief sentence uh, the more that I've witnessed and the more that I've learned, the more I realize that I actually don't know. Or the, the more I've tried to understand, the more I recognize my lack or my incapacity to fully understand what has been going on for decades. And even if you want to go further back for centuries and millennium. So uh, I, I'll i just... Uh, um share a couple of points to summarize um how my experience relates to what my mother was talking about with um the beatitudes and peacekeeping and mourning and comforting those in need of comfort but ultimately um because i actually don't know where much of the audience lies or where everyone's understanding is and everyone's in a different place of understanding in regards to what's going on in palestine and what's going on in israel um, I want to just briefly give comments and then give more time actually to uh, questions from people and maybe even open up to questions for not just myself, but for my mother. Um, so I'll keep my comments brief, um, but uh, I'll just uh, say uh, it's it's pretty, pretty timely, or I guess it's pretty um, um, almost it's strangely serendipitous that we're talking about this topic um, as just a couple of weeks ago uh, from the Mount of Olives, actually, where the Beatitudes were said to have been uh, given. Uh, there was a, um, a Palestinian man who had been traumatized through various um, experiences of his, of his own who had lost uh, siblings, who had um, uh, experienced a, a whole uh, lot of trauma that comes from simply living under military occupation, uh, decided to carry out 
his form of justice, which has been unfortunately um, disseminated through much of um, Palestinian society, as I've observed, which is to say that he um, murdered uh, a group of uh, people that were worshiping outside of a synagogue in a nearby uh, Israeli settlement, which is illegal under international law, but the people were, these innocent people were killed in the name of some sort of justice or resistance. And this is even hard to talk about, but uh, what I've experienced since then is witnessing a lot of cognitive dissonance, and I'll come back to that in a second, uh, in regards to peacemaking or mourning with our enemies um, or those outside of our tribe, I should say. Um, but it really became a turning point for me in recognizing that um, there are those who celebrate such actions, and though there are those who mourn when an attack like this is carried out. And I simply, I could live the rest of my life here and never fully grasp or understand really uh, what it's like to be uh, in the crosshairs or in the crossfire of such a conflict. My role is, as someone who's not Jewish, who's not Palestinian or even Muslim or Arab, or has any religious or ethnic ties to the land here, my role is simply to be an observer and to learn as much as I can. I thought my role would be in engaging in as much activism as I could. Um, I thought my role would be in, sorry, it looks like my mom wants to mention uh, so, oh no, I, sorry, I thought you were going to add a comment. Um, so it, I thought I would um, come, I would see a very stark reality and have my preconceptions validated and then just, in, and then just get to work. But it's actually been a lot more learning and soaking up uh, than I expected. And I'll admit to actually being upset and disappointed with uh, the reality. And sometimes I've even dehumanized people that I um, considered to be friends simply because I, I didn't understand uh, what they were going through. And I may never be able to understand. But I want to summarize in just maybe five or six points, really brief points, what I have learned. And then I can open up, we can open up to any questions people have about the situation here or or otherwise. So the first lesson that I learned was to, and I don't want to prescribe these things. I'm not, I'm not Jesus. None of us are. I can't simply say, do this and you will be blessed. But I can speak for myself and what I have learned, which is, first of all, to be intellectually honest with myself first about uh, really complex uh, conflicts such as this one. Uh, neither I nor anyone else has to go around and plant their flag or put up a banner and say, this is what I believe, or this is what I condemn. Sometimes that's helpful, but at the very least, the first step is to be, I would say, just honest with myself. What do I really believe? Um, or even what do I not believe in? Where, where do I draw the line? Um, it's important to have boundaries and to have non-negotiables in 
uh, situations like this when, when it comes to peacemaking. Otherwise, you can easily be dragged into other people's ideas of what they think they perceive justice to be. Um, another thing that has become essential for me is to learn uh, the language of the people who are affected by uh, conflicts or injustice. That can either be literal. In my case, it's been literal to learn Arabic and now to learn Hebrew. But simply learning the language um, can mean to pay attention to what recurring terms or ideas or events come up or like learn the language of the narrative as well. Learn the narrative of, of people and recognize the different narratives that people have, which might contradict, contradict your own. Um, going back to what I said earlier about seeing some friends uh, celebrate some people that I consider to be friends celebrating what I consider to be inexcusable acts of violence against what I perceive also to be innocent people. Uh, some, uh, one of my greatest temptations has been to dehumanize people who are, who are not peacemakers. Um, I think it could be, it could be very easy to see uh, something like the Palestinian Israeli or Arab Israeli conflict as merely a, um, a lens through which people can look at really heartwarming and faith affirming um, feel good stories about reconciliation. But I recognize that that's not the reality for 95% of people on the ground. They're not seeking that or nor are they versed in that. And so it's not for me to tell people that you should just be more peaceful or you should just be um, more compassionate. Um, a couple of last ones I would say are to not create, going back to what my mother mentioned about the importance of proximity. Um, I think even when living in close proximity physically with people who are different from us or outside of our tribe to live in pluralistic communities, it's easier nowadays to, uh, to create artificial silos, to become sucked into echo chambers and worlds of social media, especially where sometimes we might actually be recycling or resharing opinions that are not even our own, that have been shrink-wrapped and manufactured by other people or by other organizations for us to simply adopt as our own. And I think that's really dangerous to, to not stick to what your own innate beliefs are. So to not create artificial borders and silos as real ones already exist in abundance. Um, and uh, the last two little things I would say are number one, I recognize how, how I have dealt with larger um, societal or geopolitical issues where there's a hunger for justice and for peace. How I've dealt with those is always been a reflection with how I deal with peace within myself. It sounds very cheesy and sort of eat, pray, love, e, but honestly, um, having peace with yourself and within yourself um, is, is happening in tandem with you seeking justice for other people on a larger scale. Um, one little last thing that I would just uh, plea for is in regards to this conflict specifically, because I'm speaking to an audience of... Um, I believe predominantly Christian Americans or Americans with a Christian background. Uh, 
to to not give into American geopolitical narratives of simply giving money to um, uh, lobby groups that are pro one side that are just pro Israeli government, for example, because that inevitably becomes an obstacle to peace. And that's just my suggestion. I can't tell anyone what to do. I can just say what, what has worked for me. And yeah, that's all I have to offer. So I'll close there and say that if anyone has any questions, they can, they can shoot. Beautiful Dalton. Are there any questions before I jump in? No semaphore. No. Okay. I, I don't see. I don't see any questions in the chat. But I just um, am thinking about um, this question that Dalton came to us with that fits so well with what you were talking about. You know what feels necessary to us. Um, you know, like what felt necessary to him was to go and to have this deep proximity to be with the people. And then it really is reflecting what's in the Beatitudes and what the baptismal covenants are, right? To mourn and witness. Um, yeah, anyway. Beautiful, be- be- beautiful follow-up to what Dalton said. And, and, and I'm not here to give a plug to any particular organization, but I it was obvious to anybody listening that we have several people here that are central figures in dialogue that are also engaged in Mormon women for ethical government government. And as one of the co-founders, I I just want to turn our listeners. I'm, I'm no longer just as a caveat, I'm no longer actively involved, but I do support what this wonderful organization is doing. And I know about its roots and I can say that it they had to have been inspired because Charlie Glenn and myself and Linda, who is Chris's uh, wife, um, it, none of us could have cr- built something <laughs> uh, so prescient, so timely um, on our own had it not been inspired. We often said, we are going breakneck speed down the Autobahn and we're building the car as we're going, you know, putting on a fender and putting on a steering wheel. But but I would uh, I've, I've watched this organization um, develop into a great force for good and on the topic of peacemaking, which is MWEG's primary mission, I would just suggest people visit their website and look specifically at their six principles of peacemaking um, penned by by the founder founders. Um, I won't take time to go through them now because I want to share something else here, but I do want to suggest that is your homework. I'm the teacher, so I can suggest homework. Let me share one beautiful quote with you from a friend of mine who uh, uh, wrote a thin, heavy book called The Lord's Question. His name is Dennis Rasmussen. Some might know him as a philosophy professor at BYU. His name, he now goes by Dennis Grayson. And this takes us right to what Dalton said, and then will be the bridge to my closing comments. Uh, Brother Grayson writes, To hallow my life, he taught me to endure sorrow rather than cause it, to restrain anger rather than heed it, to bear injustice rather than inflict it. Resist not evil, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Evil multiplies by the response it seeks to provoke. 
And when I return evil for evil, I engender corruption myself. The chain of evil is broken for good when a pure and loving heart absorbs a hurt and forbears to hurt in return. The forgiveness of Christ bears no grudge. The love of Christ allows no offense to endure. The compassion of Christ embraces all things and draws them toward himself. Deep within every child of God, the light of Christ resides, guiding, comforting, purifying the heart that turns to him. End quote. So if I might, I might not have time. Can I go five minutes over? Okay. I'm going to share, if you'll permit me, a larger piece of writing. It was written for MWEG um, as a, a Christmas devotional, actually. We've, we've now passed Christmas, but we're still beginning our new year. I don't know how you're doing on your resolutions, but I'm still kind of, still kind of gearing up, okay? So th- this address was specifically about peacemaking as one of the efforts to illustrate what um, Mormon Women for Ethical Government wanted to do and what we as disciples of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are charged to do and blessed to do. This is the message of peace. They were holy, preposterous words. On earth peace, goodwill toward men, saying angels, hovering over a land heaving with political and racial tension, ruled by a degenerate despot, choked by Roman oppression, crowded in on all sides by competing foreign powers, a land which in just one generation would collapse under revolt, its temple raised to the ground. Yet, it is precisely into the heart of such a conflict-rife setting that the shimmering, pulsating words, peace, and goodwill spilled down the conduit from God's presence. Like pure water, they gushed into this murky sphere, sending bright, ever-expanding ripples across the thick Judean night. Peace, proclaimed the angels. Peace on this harsh, hostile earth. The word peace makes us pause, shake our heads. Can reasonable people really believe in, let alone strive for peace? Can we, knowing what we do of human nature and of mankind's history, of soaking this earth's crust in fratricidal blood, can we hope for peace? We proclaim without reservation that not only can we hope for peace, but we must When we kneel before the Prince of Peace, we renew our covenant to hope for peace, to claim and proclaim peace, and to proliferate his peace. One can hope for his peace only because it is independent of outward circumstances. His peace begins internally, in a heart aligning itself to truth and light. And once cultivated in that heart, it extends ever outward to touch and embrace all of mankind. Such was the LDS First Presidency holiday message to church members in 1936, where members were urged to, quote, manifest brotherly love first toward one another, then toward all mankind to seek unity, harmony, and peace within the church, and then 
by precept and example, extend these virtues throughout the world. Like the original angelic annunciation, that plea for peace came at a time of escalating global tumult. The Great Depression was still ravaging the USA. The Spanish Civil War was surging. Stalin was executing his own. Mussolini was forging an Axis alliance with Hitler. And the latter was promoting a devilish political agenda, which became official when he proclaimed himself the head of the German armed forces. This timing means that five short years following that December Christmas message, untold numbers who had heard that call to peace would be called to the front lines of the bloodiest and longest conflict of modern history. On the beaches of Normandy, in the rice paddies of Okinawa, and in the rural jungles of the Philippines, perhaps those soldiers remembered that despite the weight of the rifles strapped on their backs and the sodden camouflage uniforms stained in mud and blood, their covenant was then as always to manifest brotherly love and seek for peace. Modern conflict, both global and intimate, whether originating in Pearl Harbor, Korea, Russia, Israel, Palestine, Syria, Libya, or Washington, D.C., whether due to joblessness, chronic or terminal illnesses, abuse, abandonment, addiction, the death of our beloved, the death of our faith, mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yet, our gentle God rejoins all of this sharpness with a soft call to partake of his peace. It is this kind of peace that both opened and closed his mortal mission. The peaceful greeting angels sang at his birth. He repeated in the hours prior to his death, before the Roman guards would barter for his last bit of clothing, press thorns into his flesh, and hammer iron spikes through his hands and feet. He taught his followers that peace on earth would not necessarily mean peace in this world, but peace above and beyond it. Peace I leave with you, he said. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. I give unto you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. In the face of all that he knew would surely come of torture, betrayal, and blood, his own and his disciples, peace surely seems a wholly preposterous word or a wholly preposterous word, a blessing. When those angels blessed the quaking shepherds with a portion of holy peace, those same shepherds in turn took that testimony to what might well have been a quaking Joseph and Mary, who themselves perhaps needed reassurance that God's peace in their tiny child had indeed come to earth. Simple shepherds were among the very first witnesses who heard and carried the blessing to others, thus revealing one of the secrets of God's peace. It is always to be shared. It must also be dared, wrote the anti-Nazi dissident Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, he writes. Battles are not won with weapons, but with God. 
Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear rather than too much. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily, goes on Bonhoeffer, to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world more than they are doing now. Christians should take a stronger stand in favor of the weak rather than considering first the possible right of the strong, end quote. Internal battles, I will conclude saying, as Bonhoeffer does, are won and peace are claimed when we do the works of righteousness, when we surrender to the blessings of the Beatitudes, when we then, through that spiritual gift, go out into the world and bless the world with peace. Yes, Beatitudes scared me to death because they are the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God, but they are the blessing that the Prince of Peace, the King of Love, charges us to take into the world. I'm grateful that I could share these thoughts, that I could study these principles myself. It's my charge for myself and the challenge to live them, again, to surrender to them and to take them out into every setting and every scene. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Dalton. Um, We'll go ahead and close with prayer for those who are with us live on um, on Zoom. We'll continue with an informal conversation. Uh, we weren't able to last week, um, but but we will this time. Uh, we invite you as well to join our next live lesson, February 26th at 9 a.m. Mountain, 11 a.m. Eastern with Alice Faulkner-Birch. Uh, Molly? Father in heaven, we're grateful that we've been able to gather this morning. We're grateful for uh, the technology that allows this and um, for the things that we've learned for Melissa and Dalton's time and preparation and for their experiences. We acknowledge that we live in a broken world and that we have many opportunities to look for those who experience trauma and those who mourn. And we have an abundance of opportunities to um, witness with them and for them. We ask that we will be patient and humble in our own weaknesses and gentle with ourselves and others. We ask that we will be bridge builders and the kind of people that will build others up and strive to create the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we ask that we will take our charge to take upon the name of Christ uh, more seriously and to be 
witnesses of Christ and Christ's hands in all things. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.